Good morning, everyone. My name's Mark, and I am one of the pastors here at Door Creek, and this is a real exciting week and weekend in the life of our church. Uh, We're starting this new service, a new kind of service, where this room is going to be retrofitted in the round, and we're going to try it for 10 weeks, and uh, they're gathering this afternoon, and I hope as you think about the alternative and where you normally worship, that you think about just checking it out. And better yet, checking out with maybe somebody you know that might be interested in going to a different kind of service. Same message, but a whole different look and feel uh, starts this afternoon at 4.30. I got an email from my sister. The subject line said, stop your whining. I don't know if any of you got this one. You know, it's been a tough winter here. And not everybody likes snow like I like snow. You know, I, I love all this snow. This is great stuff. And we're ready for it to end. And it's just good to remember that, you know, compared to some places in America, we've had it really good. Just check out these pictures. This is from Watertown, New York, where in two weeks, 140, I'm not kidding you now, 146 inches in two weeks. Check this out. Is this unbelievable? Talk about cabin fever. (laughs) Unbelievable. A 13-year-old girl was asked, how in the world did you sell 13,200 boxes of Girl Scout cookies? She said it was easy. You just look people in the eye and make them feel guilty. (laughs) Now, I don't know what you're feeling guilty about today. But, man, there's a lot. You know, the younger, we don't know how much you could feel guilty about. The older we get, there's just more stuff to feel guilty about. At one point, AOL had this guilt section on their website. There was places to click for relationship guilt or parental guilt or food guilt or workforce guilt or I'm a rotten person guilt or staying in touch guilt or trying to please everyone guilt. All kinds of guilt. So I was chasing around and came into this uh, blog where the discussion was, well, what do you do with your guilt? This woman named Erin wrote this, unbelievable. What happens when you do something that you can't get forgiveness for? My husband committed suicide three years, four months, and 14 days ago. Did you hear that? Three years, four months, and 14 days ago. He needed me. And I wasn't there. I was too wounded. I was masking it. I pushed him away and he couldn't hold on. I left him at the precise moment he needed me the most. He's gone, forever gone. I'll never see him. We'll never speak. I can never say I'm sorry. And he can never forgive me. I will live with it forever. I asked God to forgive me. So I guess he did, right? Great, honest. But in this lifetime, I don't imagine I'll ever feel any better for knowing that. I can't go back and change things. I did not do everything I could have done. I am guilty. Trust me on this one. I can't forgive myself. That's what guilt is, right? So really, there is no way to process it. This is hard stuff. What would you tell her? She's your friend, your, your sister, your, your cousin, your, your daughter, your, your daughter-in-law. What would you tell her? How, how do you process guilt? What do you do with guilt? How are we 
to think about this, this thing called guilt. And, and what is it exactly? That begs the question of definition, doesn't it? Well, Webster's takes it this way. Webster says it's a fact of having committed a breach of conduct, especially violating law and involving a penalty. Broadly speaking, it has to do with guilty conduct. There's this objective side to guilt. Then there's a subjective side. It's the state of one who's committed an offense, especially consciously. It talks about our guilty feelings. And when the Bible starts teaching us about guilt, it goes out in the same way. So there's the objective side where we've done something that's dishonored God and there's this legal judgment whether we know it or not. We're guilty. And then there's the subjective side, the guilty feelings where we feel bad about what we've done. And the Bible says that our conscience is where that takes place, those guilty feelings are are worked out in our conscience. And the conscience is something that we all have. Romans 2.15 makes the point. We're all born with that. And that's where there's an innate sense, whether you're a follower of Christ and have a spirit within you or not, there's an innate sense of right or wrong that we're born with. And over time, that conscience can get better or grow to be flatlined dead, so to speak. And the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit actually works on our conscience. And and so the guilty feelings are kind of like pain in our body. When there's this shooting pain, it's telling us, message system, message system, something's wrong with our body. You you need to take care of that. You need to to get it fixed. You need to go to a doctor. And, And so guilt, like that pain, is saying, hey, something's wrong. Mainly, you've done something wrong. And when it's working right, the feelings of pain take us back to the fact of our guilt and we do something about it. We make it right with God and with others. And when the Bible talks about this conscience and our guilt working out in in a healthy way, it's letting us know that this guilt then is rooted in God's word and in his character, in his standard, that it's his spirit that applies it to our heart. It's not rooted in what other people think about it. It's not about their opinions to become this new standard for what's right and what's wrong. And so it begs the question, because we have all kinds of different things we feel guilty about, should we hold them all in the same standard? Should they all have the same weight to them? Are they equally legitimate Or is there some guilt that's illegitimate, that's misplaced? And the answer is, yeah, there's some that's misplaced, that's not legitimate. So you're driving to church. Here's an example. I don't know if this happened to you. I hope not. But you're driving to church this morning. And you ran over a squirrel. I mean, hey, you didn't go down in the ditch to get this squirrel. You didn't hop somebody's curb. I'm going to get that squirrel. It just kind of ran under your car. Crazy thing. In fact, you tried to avoid it. Almost got in an accident, but you hit the squirrel. You feel bad about it, but you know it wasn't your fault. Crazy thing, forgot where you're supposed to play, up in the trees and in the yard, not in the middle of the concrete. Or, or take this example. For some of us that have been around for a while, we grew up, a lot of us, where you had to finish everything on your plate. Anybody grow up like that? Yeah, so it's, it's us older guys. Um. And, and, and here's, here's how it works. 
uh, for, for, for you young ones that don't know how it works, it worked like this. If you didn't finish everything on your plate, you're like, you couldn't leave the table. And they'd like, parents would start setting timers, and there's a lot of pressure, <laughs> especially if you didn't have a dog. <laughs> or you're running out of space in your napkin. And, and then, you know, they start threatening you, like, you know, if you don't finish tonight, you're going to have it for breakfast. It's like, oh, man, that's even going to be worse, cold. Then they laid the guilt trip on you about all the kids in the world that don't have it. And we're thinking and saying at times, well, just send it to them. (laughs) And so to this day, it's hard for me to leave something on my plate. It's hard for me to see something left on the kids' plates. And that's why I'm always clean. We're the clean plate family because I'm feeling guilty about leaving stuff on on a plate. That's guilt. And, And let me say there's misplaced guilt. Let me give you three versions of misplaced guilt. The first is when we feel guilty about something that actually wasn't dishonoring to God. But we feel really bad about it. It's like, I didn't buy the cookies from the girl in front of Piggly Wiggly for Girl Scout sales this year. Because I didn't look in her eye, right? It's misplaced because we're feeling bad about something that fundamentally, at its core, objectively, didn't dishonor God. Man, I feel bad about it. Then there's a kind of guilt that's misplaced that I'll call scapegoat guilt. You ever had this? So something bad happened. It did dishonor God. You didn't do it. Somebody else did it. But you were kind of around it. You were near it. You were close by. And it was real easy for somebody else to pin it on you. Or it gets really crazy where sometimes we pin it on ourselves. And this kind of stuff happens a lot in our families when things get a little wiggy and messed up. And then there's a third kind of guilt that's misplaced. It's the guilt where, yeah, we did dishonor God, but we confessed it to God, asked for forgiveness, and as best as we could, we made it right with people that we know and that we hurt. We've been forgiven. We've made restitution as best we're able, but we still feel guilty. Those are all examples of misplaced guilt. And it reminds us as we talk about this subject and as we go on living our life that we need to have a filter so that we can know what is misplaced and what is well-placed guilt. And what I can say is for us to get an edge on that, to grow in our understanding, to distinguish that is that we need to be better students of the Bible. We're going to read the Bible this week because we want to hear from God. Because we want them to direct our paths. But we also want to read our Bibles this week because we want to continue to gain this this biblical filter where we know what is true and we know what is not and we're wise enough to discern the difference between misplaced and well-placed guilt. So what do we do with it? Psalm 32 says what not to do and what to do. Verse 3. This is David after his sin of adultery and murder, when I kept silent about that sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. It's good to remember that we are whole people and when we mess up spiritually, it can affect us physically. David said, my body was wasting away. For day and night, God, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. 
So we're going to do one of two things, cover it up or we're going to fess up, confess it. When we cover it up, what we're doing is we're taking one of these kind of paths and there's a whole bunch more, I'm sure. One of them is to say, what I did wasn't really wrong. Or we minimize it. It wasn't really that big of a deal. Because, man, look what everybody else is doing. We rationalize it and say, compared to what everybody else is doing, this is nothing. Or we supersize God's mercy and say, but, man, God is so loving and merciful. He's just going to kind of sweep that right under the carpet. We blame others. Or, or we bury it in good works so that, that we think that whatever anybody's seeing in our life is just the good stuff, and hopefully that's going to make us feel better. We drown it in alcohol or in a, a drug-induced high or the seeking of pleasure because we just want to bury it because we don't know how to get rid of it. So we just are covering it up, covering it up. And the Bible says when you continue to ignore the pain signal that comes to your conscience through the Holy Spirit, that what ends up happening is as you keep turning it off, you keep turning off the signal that's going right into our hearts, that, that there's a time when you turn it off and the whole thing shorts out. You fry it. It's what the Bible calls a seared conscience. It's what happens when we burn some place on our body and the skin is no longer sensitive to pain and sensation. We've, we've fried out the nerve endings, can't feel anymore. And the bottom line is we can bury it, not feel it anymore, but the objective fact of our guilt remains. And the truth is guilt continues to haunt us and to weigh us down. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 38, verse 4. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. But what happens when we confess? Well, he says, when I acknowledged it, you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's what God promises to us. This is a great promise. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And the psalmist says, and he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's what God does when we confess. And so the question that is a really important one is, then on what basis is that sin removed, is that that guilt lifted? On what basis? Is it on the basis of what I do? Is it on the basis of what somebody does for me as they say, it's all right, man, you're forgiven? Is it on the basis of what God does? And the answer in the Bible is, it's on the basis of what God does and what God has done for us on the cross. This is really, really important. And how you answer and how you've been answering this question explains where you're at with this weight of guilt. The basis of our forgiveness is not our confession. We're called to do that. But that's not the ground. That's not the confidence. Our confidence is in the cross of Christ, not in somebody else forgiving us, but in finding forgiveness through Christ's death on the cross and having our guilt removed. Now, this is the argument that he has for us, the writer of Hebrews. We've already looked at it. We're going to go back to it. Hebrews chapter 9. Take your Bibles. Open it up to verse 11, page 850. 
Now, as you go into Hebrews, if you ever read Hebrews, man, it's a heavy book. And it's all about the superiority of Christ because the writer is making a case for a group of people who are losing their confidence in Christ. And he's just showing Christ is, is so far better than anything of the Old Covenant, anything in the Old Testament. He's so far superior. And here his focus is on his sacrifice on the cross. Verse 11. Got it? When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? So what the Bible is saying is our confidence in the cross frees us from guilt. Say that with me. Our confidence in the cross frees us from guilt. Frees me from guilt. Frees you from guilt. Our confidence in the cross. What Jesus did and what Jesus promised. What did he do? We read on in verse 24 of chapter 9. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he's appeared once. For all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And so it's Christ's once and for all sacrifice that transforms us. We're talking about the transforming power of the cross. It transforms us from living under this weight of guilt to living in the freedom of forgiveness and the peace of being right with God and right with other people. And the way he did that was by taking it all on himself. He was like that scapegoat that the scriptures describe back in Leviticus 16. One of the goats was killed. The other, the priest put his hands on his head, symbolic of all the sins of the people laid on that goat's head, and he was released out in the wilderness. It all came crashing down on Christ when he died on the cross. And this was God's will and his promises through Christ's sacrifice. We can have our sins forgiven and our guilt removed. It's his promise. Go back to... The next page over, chapter 10, verse 17. We pick up this word of promise as he's quoting Jeremiah 31. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. 
And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith in what Christ has done, having our hearts sprinkled by His blood to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised is faithful. He's faithful to His word to forgive our sin. And you know what? The application here is for those of us who've never had our sins forgiven by Christ. We're understanding why there is this weight of guilt in our life right now and why it is that you haven't been able to get rid of it because your confidence and how you're going to deal with this has been in the wrong place. It's been on everything and everywhere but Christ and the cross. Have you placed your confidence, your trust in the cross of Christ and been delivered? If not, you can do that right now, today. Tony Campalo tells this amazing story when he was a little guy sitting in church. It was communion Sunday. And the pastor did what we call, as pastors, he fenced the table. He talked about the warning in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, verse 27, of taking the, the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner and in so doing, drinking and eating judgment on your very head. It's not a game where you, you pretend that you have this relationship with God when you don't. It's not this game where you pretend that you're right with God and you're not. And he's talking about this warning and all of a sudden this little guy notices that the girl right in front of him, in the pew in front of him, starts to weep. And as the bread and the plate comes down the aisle, she lowers her head and she holds out her hand and says, no, I, I, I can't take it. I don't deserve it. And Tony says, my Sicilian father leaned forward and said, take it, girl. It's for you. Do you hear me? And she nodded her head and she took the bread. And Jesus, the father, whisper into your ear this morning, take it. Take it. It's for you. He died for you. Take it and be free. Be free. But then there's a whole bunch of us who said, well, I've done that. I believe that. But man, why do I still feel so guilty? There's a couple things to chase through. One is, the Bible's clear that repentance and confession is not something we just do once in our life. It's an ongoing thing. And when we, when we cover sin, even as people who've now come in this relationship with Christ, that sin becomes a barrier to us. And, and there is a right place for guilt in our life because we haven't dealt with it by confessing it before God. And we need to do that. We also need to understand that we could have made it right with God, but we forgot the horizontal dimension of sin. It's always working vertically and horizontally. That's the beauty of the symmetry of the cross. Christ's death deals with our sin against God and against each other. 
And we've got to ask ourselves, is the reason I'm feeling guilty right now because I haven't made it right with the people or the person that I've wronged? And God's just letting me sense that until I get it right. Maybe there's something you need to do so you can get that weight off you. Then there's this third area. It has to do with the enemy. Remember how Peter calls him? He's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the way that he devours us is just not in temptation, but it's an accusation. He's called the accuser of God's children. Revelation chapter 12. And one of the things he specializes in is he recalls to our mind and our conscience all the stuff, the junk, the things that we did that truly did dishonor God. And he walks it and sends it right back in our life and puts it right here. And he says, look at you, my fair. You're a piece of dirt. I know who you are. I know what you've done. And God isn't pleased with you. He won't ever use you. And you start believing the lie. And what happens is he takes you out of the game. He takes you right out of the game. It's really interesting that in chapter 9, verse 14, he talks about us being cleansed from a guilty conscience so that, for this purpose, that we could serve the living God. And what happens is, when we're loaded down as a Christ follower in guilt, it takes us right out of the game. We're in the parade. We're in the game. Now, all of a sudden, we're on the curb. We're up in the stands. We're watching it all because we're believing the lie. God can't use me. God wouldn't want to use me. I'm so messed up. That's what Peter felt. That's why Jesus had a little talk at the, at the shore. Say, do you love me? Then get on with my work. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. I got work for you to do. Get in your study notes this week and look up that passage in Zechariah chapter 3. And when Zechariah shouts in this vision, put the turban back on. Just don't forget that the turban had that medallion that said, useful, holy, set apart for the Lord. He wanted to know that this man who was dressed up in filthy garments and sin could still have value and service to God. And God said, absolutely he does. Don't believe the lie. We just did our survey. You filled it out. 53% of Door Creek says, haven't found a place to serve. The application here is don't let your guilt be the reason why you're not serving. Don't go another day forward letting your guilt immobilize you to be used for the kingdom of God. God looks at you and he sees Christ. You're covered in his blood, in his perfect righteousness. And he smiles when you think all he does is frown. He loves you. He says, get in the game. And for a lot of us, we just can't forgive ourselves. We just can't. We found it from Christ. We found it from others. We cannot forgive ourselves. You know what the wicked thing about that is? When we do that, And we do do that, don't we? What we're doing, in effect, is saying to God, saying to Christ, the cross wasn't good enough. wasn't enough. I need something more. We've lost our nerve. We've lost our confidence. In all of these, we return with faith in what Christ has done on the cross. 
It's our confidence in the cross that frees us from guilt. The movie, The Mission, tells this great story of a Jesuit priest named Gabriel. He's commissioned to build this mission in a South African village up high in the mountains, ministering to the Guarani Indians. On his way to the village, he meets this guy named Mendoza. De Niro plays Mendoza, irons the priest. And, and the priest, Gabriel, says to Mendoza, who is a mercenary, he's a bad man. He's killed his own brother in a fit of rage. He's taken these very Indian people, the Guaranis, and forced them and sold them as slaves. The priest says, why don't you join me to go up to that village? I know you're trapped in this prison of guilt, and let me help you be set free. Here's the conversation. There's a way out, Mendoza. Gabriel says, For me, there's no redemption, Mendoza replies. God gave us the burden of freedom. You chose your crime. Do you have the courage to choose your penance? Do you dare do that? Mendoza, there is no penance hard enough for me. But do you dare try it? Do I dare? Do you dare see it fail? And then the movie goes on to depict this incredible journey that's taken up to the village. And Mendoza has tied around his his neck and shoulders this rope that's hauling up a bundle of armor that weighs 100 pounds, and he's carrying it through the rivers, and he's scaling up this unbelievable waterfall, slipping, and this whole thing is, is this weight for him. And we pick up the movie clip as he's making his way into the village.
of your experience but it can be this very day I love how this movie powerfully describes the weight of guilt in that pile of armor that he's dragging around I love how it it reminds us of how we can have a part in each other's lives of helping us find freedom from all of that in Christ I love the, the, the powerful demonstration of the freedom as he weeps, realizing that the man had every right to slit his throat, but in the face of forgiveness and the power of grace, he's, he's released. It's so beautiful. My concern, though, is the same concern that the writer of the Hebrews had, that somehow we would think that that what Christ did wasn't enough, that we, that we need to, to choose our penance and, and somehow work it off. And in fact, the Bible says God has already chosen it. And the path was that the full weight of all that's been driving down on your heart and the lives of everyone who's ever lived or will live was placed on Christ, on Him. The burden of sin and guilt was placed Peter says this very thing in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Have you found that healing? Do you need it today? Do you know that you're really forgiven? Don't carry it around anymore. Don't wait for someone else to cut it loose. Trust in the one who took it on himself and promises you forgiveness. Trust in the cross and be free. Let's pray. God, we love you all the more as we're reminded that judgment was due us. Like Mendoza, we're guilty. We've dishonored you. And the penalty of sin is death, and we deserved it. And yet you sent your Son to take what we deserved, to give us what we could never, ever find in ourselves, freedom 
and life and hope and peace and power to live for you and for others now and forever. I pray that there wouldn't be one person here today that would leave in their own sin and guilt and that you would set us free to serve you, our living God, and your Son, our living Savior. It's in his name we pray, amen.